How do you feel about what the Eskimos do? Is that a good idea? Well, no, no, that's brutal. Putting, putting older, on the ice. older that's men brutal. and women out on ice floors. We're doing the same thing by letting them starve and thirst to death in, in, in hospitals. You call, the Germans did that in the concentration camps. Our Supreme Court has validated That happens in hospitals, you think? It sure does. It's legal. And the Supreme Court of the United States, our august Supreme Court, has validated the Nazi method of execution in, in concentration camps, starving them to death. Yeah. Now, now, what are you saying? Please, uh, what are they doing in hospitals that you... They take away their feeding and water when they're in coma and let them die. I mean, you're validating what the Nazis did in concentration camps. And what, uh, but you do not approve of that? Absolutely not. That's brutal. That is inhumane. Would you approve of that when, a, when you say a person should be allowed to die? Inject them quickly and painlessly, not let them wither away and starve to death. That is inconceivable. It's unspeakable. But our Supreme Court has said, that is nice. It's ethical. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? I spent the first decade of this century working in a group home with kids and young adults who had mental and physical disabilities. Medically fragile was a term oft thrown around, but at the home I worked at as a head staff, we took on all kinds of challenges. Looking back, it was by far the best job I ever had. As staff, we were family for most of those kids. I spent six Christmas mornings in that house. Some went home for the holidays, but most stayed. It was a hard place to be, with long stretches of monotony punctuated by chaos. Eventually, I worked my way into a position as a one-to-one with a young man who could be very difficult, but had over the years grown to trust me greatly, and I'd grown to respect him and love him just as much. If he wouldn't, say, take his medication, staff could call me up at home and ask me to talk to him. He'd open his mouth if I told him to over the phone. He'd do it gladly, laughing a little, maybe just wanting to get a phone call in. He loved the phone even though he couldn't do more than make strained, raspy sounds from deep in his throat. This young man had chronic lung disease, which left him without use of about 70% of his lung capacity. We whacked congestion from his chest three times a day with our hands, or a drill with a pad on the end, chest physio it was called. He would aspirate easily, so all of his food was pureed, his liquids thickened. He was small in stature, about 4 foot 10, but solid and strong. Doctors marveled at his perseverance. There were other issues, but I think I've said enough. Hospital visits weren't abnormal, but as he entered his 20s, they became more frequent. He began to tire, slowing down in his old age. I knew the end was nearing. Doctors had predicted he'd only live until his mid-teens. We did our best to keep him comfortable and happy. One morning, as I walked up to the access ramp of the residence, I noticed that he wasn't at the window, waiting as he usually did. 
I went to get him up for breakfast and found him laying on his bed, slowly pounding his head against the wall, an indication of discomfort. His skin looked grayish, his eyelids blue. I heaved him up and carried him to the washroom. He was shaking, so I stood him in the shower and let the warm water work on him. I had never seen him this way. He began to cough, but didn't have the energy, and he began choking. I panicked and threw him up over my shoulder and jumped a couple times to help it along. This worked. He was breathing freely again, as freely as he breathed, um, and he was looking a little better, his skin coming back to a more normal color. But when I checked his oxygen levels, it was clear that we needed an ambulance. The doctors tried to treat him, but after a few days, it was clear he wasn't going to recover. He was retaining water, indicating that his kidneys were shutting down. There was no hope for the kid. The order was sent to stop feeding and providing water. He was being let go. In the customary way, our friend Dr. Kevorkian explained at the beginning of this episode. I sat with my sick little friend for days, overnight mostly. If he were to pass away in the night, I wanted to be there with him in that scary old hospital to push away the terror a little as he slipped away. I sang songs, told rambling stories. I repeated to him that it was okay to relax, okay to let go. I figured he'd last a day or two, but as a week passed and he began to look at me wild-eyed, lips chapped and skin tightened, I realized that this was a fucking horror show. I'm the one he's looked to for food and juice for most of the past decade. He thinks I'm depriving him. He doesn't understand what's happening. He's thirsty. He hurts. Why am I not shoveling a spoonful of thickened water and medication into his mouth to make it better? Why am I just sitting there? I asked the nurses if I can at least wet his mouth, if they can give him morphine or something. They look into it, was the answer. Eventually, no, it was doctor's orders. I sat by the bed all night, every night, trying to will his rattled breathing to stop, but he just kept on living. Quarter of a lung, system shutting down, no food, no water. He lasted like this for a little over ten days. I would doze with my head on his bed and have dreams of just putting my hand over his mouth and nose just for a minute, I thought. Then this could be done. On the morning of my 28th birthday, having traded my overnight watch, I walked into the room for a day shift, and he was laying there, clearly dead. He looked like a concentration camp victim. A husk. He died about 20 minutes earlier. I was an hour late for my shift. <clears throat> I'd let it rip the previous night at a surprise birthday party. My friends had sprung. I was hung over. My supervisor rushed in, repeating my name. An attendant brushed past me and applied a toe tag. I needed a drink. But not as bad as my little buddy <clears throat> clearly had. His lips were torched. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 9, Dr. Kevorkian. Gavorkian was born May 26, 1928, in Pontiac, Michigan. He was the second of an eventual three children. His parents, Armenian refugees, 
adored their only son, who would in time affectionately become known as Jack. Jack's parents had been through hell to get to America. They both fled the Armenian Holocaust, an event that I studied and found that it clearly deserves a four-part episode on its own, done by somebody 100% more qualified than your boy Luna. I hesitate to even boil it down, but a comprehension of it is necessary in order to grade the fuel that fed Kevorkian's lifelong fire. As the World War II storm clouds began to roll in, Armenians, who for the most part were Christian, came under suspicion of potentially becoming traitorous to the Ottoman Empire they were ruled under, that was for the most part Muslim. The Ottoman Empire, which would come to be known as Turkey by 1923, allied with Germany when World War II got underway and felt that Armenians posed a threat of allying with Christian-governed countries like Russia and the inevitable approaching war. What followed was an all-out assault on the Armenian population. Genghis Khan-style pillaging, raping of women, torching of homes, murders of offspring and able-bodied Armenian men, then a death march for the rest into the Syrian desert. At least that's my very basic understanding. I can't just say death march and move on. These people have been herded like cattle into the desert and left to die. They were barely any rations handed out. The, the desert's hot. You need water out there, and the military didn't set up concession stands. There were reports of people picking through horse shit and eating any grains they could find. Groups of orphan children huddled together when the sun went down, their emaciated bodies barely able to share or retain heat. In an interview with Kevorkian, he divulged some of the darker details he'd learned of what had been described as the Armenian Genocide. Prisoners were released and armed told to kill any Armenian they came across. Pregnant women were cut open and the babies pulled out to play catch with. Rampant rape, as I said, indiscriminate murder, heads on stakes, mass graves. It's estimated that 1.5 million Armenians died in the slaughter. Most of Kevorkian's extended family were a part of that incomprehensible number. Jack's father was smuggled out of Turkey by missionaries in 1912 and eventually made his way to the States, where he was drawn to the promise of work in Michigan's auto industry. He lost his entire family in the massacre. Jack's mother narrowly escaped it, fleeing to Paris with family, then eventually to Pontiac, Michigan as well. Her parents were killed in the slaughter. The two met through the Armenian community and eventually married and had said children. Jack's father lost his job in the early 30s, but was prepared and quick on his feet, foreseeing the depression that quagmired most families at that time. He had started up his own excavating company, and the Kevorkians cruised through the leanest years of the 20th century. Jack was quoted as saying this about his mother and father. Quote, My parents sacrificed a great deal so that we children would be spared undue privation and misery. End quote. It wasn't a cushy childhood by any means whatsoever. Jack had the weight of his dead relatives on his shoulders, and a drive to become something spurred on in him by his hard-working, tough-loving parents. Jack thrived on the expectation. He was bumped from grade 6 straight into junior high and had taught himself Japanese and German by high school. Jack earned the admiration of his peers by taking on teachers in class about the subject matter, and more often than not, coming in on top. He was a bookworm and a skilled debater. He didn't just hold his own with his educators. He humiliated them with his cachet of stored knowledge and sharp wit. Jack's academic drive inevitably alienated him from his classmates. By all accounts, he was respected, but not understood. He never married or had children, making the decision as early as his high school years to dedicate his time to study in the pursuit of making a difference. I couldn't find a credible source for what Kevorkian's IQ was. Colleagues guessed that it had to be pushing 200, a phenomenal number. I read a story on Reddit about a teacher who once said about IQ tests that IQ tests are useful for grading how good someone is at taking IQ tests. Regardless, Kevorkian was by all accounts a genius. 
He could write German with one hand and English with the other simultaneously. I tried writing hello and hola in this fashion, and it felt like a piece of my brain exploded. I'm surprised it ain't just completely malfunctioned and hit the floor vomiting and peeing my pants. Once Kevorkian finished high school with honors at 17, he made a brief run towards becoming a civil engineer, but quickly found it to be boring, and managed to enter the University of Michigan's medical program after busting his ass to catch up with the requirements necessary to do so. Kevorkian was, from the beginning, fascinated with death and dying. One of his first independent research projects involved taking photographs of a dying or recently deceased patient's eyes. Kevorkian was able to determine from these photos when a person has truly died. This research may sound intrusive and dark, but it was important in the area of transplant surgery. Moments count when it comes to salvaging organs from the recently deceased, and Kevorkian wrote papers about his findings, claiming that he could save hospitals millions of machines used to determine the moment of death, something that was much harder to determine then than it is now. As with most of Kevorkian's research, it went ignored. Peer shied from the controversial young doctor, who seemed hell-bent on going against the grain and blazing his own trail. Kevorkian raised eyebrows when he began proposing that death row inmates be used for painless medical experiments, leading up to and ending in the prisoner's death. Jack had been inspired by reading of the Greeks and the knowledge they had gathered having used Egyptian criminals for such tests. Kevorkian didn't want to perform vivisections as the Greeks likely did, a vivisection being dissection of a living organism and maybe a horror to be discussed in another episode. God, can you imagine being flayed open for doctors to observe your working parts? Kevorkian reasoned that research dollars could be saved by using the condemned for end-of-life study. He called it, quote, terminal human experimentation, and thought it to be a great idea, as the research could be doubled down to study the criminal mind as well. Not to mention, as Jack pointed out to uncomfortable colleagues, that the prisoner could pay back some of their debt to society by volunteering their doomed body to science. I'm a huge fan of Dr. K, if you can't tell, but I'm going to assume that he lacks some tact when proposing these projects. Kevorkian was booted from his internship at the University of Michigan Medical Center for his proposals, but was able to continue at Pontiac General Hospital, where the man who very early became known as Dr. Death continued to provoke eyebrows onto foreheads. Jack began studying the viability of transferring the blood from the recently deceased into the living in need of a blood transfusion. Kevorkian had served in the Korean War as a medical army officer for little over a year, taking a break from his studies and work to do so. Well, he was drafted, I believe. Regardless, Kevorkian li likely developed a passion for finding shortcuts to blood transfusion during this period. The Korean War was a bloody one. His research was quite successful, and he applied for a federal grant to take it further. It wasn't an original idea, I should add. He got it from the Russians. But regardless, he tried to implement the practice for the good guys, and just about everyone he spoke to was turned off by the study. Harvesting the dead for parts wasn't the most popular topic at the time, but Jack was a realist and a problem solver. He knew that soldiers had bracelets that held their information of their blood type and surmised that if it could be proven that fresh cadaver blood transfusion was viable, then maybe some soldiers in Vietnam could be saved in a pinch. The application for the grant was rejected, his research ignored. He continued, despite the fact that he was becoming a pariah in medical circles. At some point during these studies, Jack accidentally contracted hepatitis C. Not like anyone intentionally gets hep C. Serves him right, some surely thought. In 1960, Kevorkian became qualified as a specialist and began working all over the country, accruing more than 30 published papers regarding his research on death and dying. He found that everywhere he went, people were squeamish and turned off by the subject, not willing to get too deep about it, preferring to wait until the last moment before they really accepted it, and spending their last days in agony as doctors, petrified at the potential reprimands for helping their patients along, waited them out. 
The consensus was, and still is in most parts of the world, that nature should be allowed to run its course. All right, so this is a story I promised myself I'd never tell on the podcast, but an opportunity has presented itself here. And considering I already admitted to fighting off the lure of euthanasia in my intro, this experience doesn't seem so taboo anymore. <clears throat> I worked in a private nursing home when I was 17. Uh, there I was exposed to all kinds of experiences, including the process of death. The home housed around six patients at a time, <clears throat> most of them suffering from the late stages of multiple sclerosis. I would go in and sit with them by their bedside and just listen. I'd hold cigarettes to their lips. You could smoke everywhere still back then. Or I'd help give a sponge bath, change a colostomy bag. I watched people die, basically, and lent what comfort that I could. Just listening goes a long way, I learned. You don't need to solve their problems for them, and that situation you simply can't. It's not going to be okay. Things aren't going to look up if they hang in there. So you just listen and try to make them laugh from time to time. Anyways, this story didn't happen at the home. It happened while I was walking to it, along a fairly busy stretch of street where I came upon a cat that had just been hit by a car and lay mewling on the sidewalk upon which I was the only person. Its guts were hanging out, and it was clearly... It was fucked. I looked at it in pity for a moment. As the car sped past me, indifferent to the horror unfolding on roadside, it really didn't take long to decide what I had to do. I looked for a rock but couldn't find one. The cat began to drag itself toward the curb, then flopped in resignation and began writhing in pain. Its head was caved slightly. It was dying, and out of it, it continued to mule and whine. <laughs> I could see that it had been just about seven and a half and was in desperate agony. It was black and white with... It had a flea collar. All right, so if you're an animal lover, you might want to break out the earmuffs for a sec. Maybe I'm a little late on that, my bad. <laughs> I didn't see any other option. I raised my foot and stomped on its head. The cat was still alive. Even more days now, but still alive. My sneakers weren't the best bludgeoning instrument, but I was committed and full of adrenaline now. A car honked as I slammed my foot down again on the poor thing's head. It was still alive. And it looked up at me like, what the fuck, bro? You skip leg day. <laughs> I realized this was going to take some effort, so I sucked it up. And I finished the job. It was out by the third piston, and I gave it a few more to be sure. When I was certain, and trust me, I was, I bolted from the scene, stopping at a bridge that I ducked under to clean off my shoe in a river and to say what the fuck to myself about 30 times. I didn't mention the incident to anyone for years. I rediscovered it in my drug-hazed early 20s and found that I could bring the house down if I told it just right. It's a trippy story. A mind-blower if you're not accustomed to the dark topics. Or have ever been forced into one of those situations before. A lot of people like to act like they know exactly what they would do in a particular situation, but you really don't know until you're in it. It was still there when I finished work. I walked the other side of the street on the way home. It was gone the next morning. No yellow tape. Anyways. What was I talking about that brought that confession up? I'm letting nature take its course. I don't know. It's, it is what it is. I felt like the right thing to do. Before I did it, at least. With better tools, it was the right thing I feel. Certainly it was, had I been in a hospital with it and had all kinds of access to pain relievers and methods of mercifully ending it for the poor thing. 
But we don't do it for our mothers and fathers, our family and friends. We let them starve to death or force them to covertly defy their own method of escape and commit suicide. In shame, without their family around them. We keep people in comas for years in a fog of lucid dreams and just stop supporting them when we feel hope is lost. This is fun. Yeah, You guys having a good time? <laughs> yeah, me too. Happy belated Mother's Day, ladies. All right, everybody, Badlands Food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. All right, everybody. Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, <laughs> uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix. Nicotine toothpicks.
Jack bounced around for years, always studying and pushing his ideas on using death row inmates for experimentation, and as a result, consistently being seen as an eccentric outsider by the medical profession at large. After another one of many disputes with the chief pathologist that left Kevorkian jobless, he decided to retire. Kevorkian lived a long life, and the entirety of it didn't revolve around his crusade for the terminally ill to die with dignity. I'm not going to do a biography on Jack. I'll just say he took some breaks to do things that he later hated talking about, like pouring his life savings into a piece of shit movie, bringing to life the composer Handel's Messiah. The movie is, uh, in Jack's words, brutal, and he knew it. The whole experience drove home that if he wanted to get something done right, he had to do it himself. Broke and beaten down by his failed shot in Hollywood, Jack was at an all-time low. He was living off of canned food and occasionally sleeping in his car. He broke up a relationship with a woman who was his fiance, so he was on his way to, to getting married and all that, but that fell apart as well. Inspiration soon struck when he came across some literature that informed him of what doctors in the Netherlands were up to. They were assisting patients with suicide, euthanasia. Kevorkian began working on and writing his own articles on the subject and slowly began to let go of his prisoner experiment crusade that had chewed up so much of his time. This was something that he could actually put into action himself. He was back in Michigan, where, at the time, they had no clear law against assisted suicide. Jack put out an ad for death counseling, and pretty soon, the desperately ill were ringing his phone off the hook. Kevorkian decided that he'd start helping these patients who were begging for mercy. He didn't care if it would lead to the demise of his practice and career. Jack wasn't motivated by money or status. He was motivated by truth and change for the betterment of mankind. Admittedly, he was also hell-bent on not becoming one of his own patients someday. He had watched his mother die a gruesome, drawn-out death, of which her doctor refused to expedite. Jack didn't want the same fate to befall him, and history had taught that he would have to take this thing to the rocks in order to make an impact. He was willing to go to prison for his beliefs. Welcome it, really, as he knew that that was what was necessary in order to shine light on the subject. Before we get into a couple of the eventual 130-plus assisted suicides Gavorkin performed, I should note that Jack didn't take money in exchange for his services. Kevorkian would become famous, infamous, for the path he took from here on in, and some say that he was motivated by that fame and by money, but he was never motivated by money. He was motivated by his own resolve that this was the right thing to do. Anyone who takes the time to listen to him speak in his 60 Minutes interviews or in court or in documentaries will be won over by the guy. Sure, he's flamboyant and theatrical, but that was necessary in order to grab the nation's attention and those who opposed him, mainly in religious circles, seemed to forget that their poster boys were rebels and a little out there, too. Kevorkian had a problem. The traditional method of assisted suicide involved injecting the patient, something that the doctor would have to do himself and thereby leave himself responsible for what the courts would likely consider murder. He would take the precaution of videotaping his patients during his death consultations so that there would be no doubt in court that the patient had gone willingly. What he needed now was a way for them to go under their own power. Jack had always been a bit of an inventor. He devised a suicide machine that he named the Thanatron, after the Greek mythological daemon, the personification of death, Thanatos. This is how it functioned. It worked by pushing a button to deliver the euthanizing drugs mechanically through an IV. There were three canisters mounted on a metal frame. Each bottle had a syringe that connected to a single IV line that Kevorkian put into the person's arm for them. The first bottle contained saline, to get things going. The second, sodium thiopental, which would put the patient into deep coma, and then, 60 seconds later, 
The final bottle would be triggered, which contained a lethal mix of potassium chloride that would immediately stop the heart, and pancurium, pancuronium bromide, a paralytic medication to prevent spasm during the dying process. Kevorkian's first patient was a recently diagnosed Alzheimer patient named Janet Atkins. The year was 1990. Janet was terrified of what her future held. She was well aware of what it would be and did not want to go through it. She wanted to exit the world in her own terms and with her mind intact. Jack filmed their consultation. She's a sweet-looking woman. Reminds me of a character from Little House on the Prairie. Miss Atkins was 54 years old at the time she sought Kevorkian's help. On the tape, Jack clearly states that he would prefer she carry on, but Atkins is firm in her wishes and appears completely mentally competent and deeply sad and scared. Alzheimer's disease creeps up on the afflicted. First, they begin to forget little things like what month it is or have trouble remembering a name. But the slope is steep, and given enough time to work on the brain, this disease will strip a sufferer down to the point of not knowing what being thirsty is anymore. The urge to do something so natural as request a drink of water becomes confusing, not to mention the urge to go to the bathroom or the ability to instantly recognize your children. Like I said, Janet Atkins understood this entirely. In the consultation video, she looks at Kevorkian tearfully, pleadingly. Kevorkian decides he'll assist his patient with her wishes. Dr. Kevorkian had a 1968 white-rusted Volkswagen van, of which he decided to use to perform his first assisted suicide. This van was actually just bought by uh, Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventures. I think he bought it for over uh, a little over $30,000, which a lot of people are like, what? For that old van? But, man, I get it. If I had thirty grand lying around, I would have bought it too. His sisters accompanied him for the procedure. They'd soften the atmosphere for Miss Atkins and be there in solidarity with their brother when the police swarmed in. Jack drove the van into a park where he'd arranged to meet with his patient. They wasted little time. Janet was ready. She made her peace and said her goodbyes. Once seated in the vehicle, Kevorkian hooked her up to the IV attached to the Thanatron. He showed her the button. Janet Atkins took in a deep breath of resolve, released an exhale of resignation, and took control of her fate. She pressed the button, initiating the drip sequence. Ten seconds later, she was unconscious. Minutes later, she was dead. Dr. Gavorkian calmly phoned in the death. Confused medics and officers arrived, and the body was taken away. Jack was free to go, but a couple of days later, as he headed to the post office, unaware that a warrant was now out for his arrest, he hears the squeal of car tires, followed by orders of... Put your hands up. Kevorkian can't help but smirk as the officers bear down on him, push him against a wall, and roughly secure cuffs before shoving him in the back of a squad car. His crusade for the right to die has begun. Kevorkian enlists the services of a medical trial lawyer named Jeffrey Figer. Figer was a successful lawyer, full of character and fortitude. He wasn't the first that Jack reached out to, but he was of the rare who were willing to take Kevorkian's case on. A case that other lawyers saw as a risk to their career due to the controversy surrounding it. Jack's oldest sister liked Figer and pressed Jack to hire him. Without the counsel of his sisters, Jack would have taken the whole thing on alone, which would have resulted in his legacy exploding on the launch pad. Figer was able to get Jack off of the murder charge, and soon Kevorkian was back in business. The press ate it up, spun it up, and spit it out. Kevorkian is a very gothic-sounding name, and the man himself had the look of a specter. 
His nickname was Dr. Death, for Christ's sakes. The, the world took notice, more intrigued by the man than his case, unfortunately. After Kevorkian assisted with his second suicide, his medical license was revoked. This made it impossible for him to legally obtain the substances used with the Thanatron, so he had to come up with another device. I mentioned that Jack was very inventive, but I don't think I was clear enough. He was also diverse, deep. He was an author who had written several books, including one called Slimericks, which was a quirky weight loss guide that basically suggested you put anything you want to eat on your plate, but eat half of it. He was big on calorie counting, on taking in less than you burn off. The book was full of crude, funny drawings, which did little to show off his true ability as an artist. Jack's artwork was incredible, mostly described as macabre and doing nothing to help his image with his detractors. But if one took the time to hear the reasoning behind the paintings, they would, of course, find that there was a much deeper meaning. Unfortunately, most detractors of anything aren't willing to dig at all. They only want to pile the dirt on. Jack invented the Zippolope, which was an envelope that had dental floss running along the inside at the top with a piece to pull on and cleanly open your mail. He came up with a chainless bike that you could ride on water. Jack wrote his own music, built his own instruments... But by all accounts, Jack would become bored of these things and never really stuck something through that didn't completely grab him. He would simply complete, then drop projects that would take most people a lifetime to finish and enjoy. The whole right-to-die fight was something that did grab him. He became immersed in it. More than that, it consumed him. And when the death machine he named the Thanatron became unusable due to its, his recent inability to obtain medicines, he went to the drawing board and came up with the Mercitron a canister of carbon monoxide with a tube and mask attached. The valve would be open and a clothes peg on the tube that could be knocked off by the patient when they were ready to go. This process took about 10 minutes, much longer than the Thanatron, but he did what he could. Patients often took muscle relaxants or sedatives beforehand to keep them calm during the long process of breathing in the deadly gas. Kevorkian helped over 130 people die over the next eight years. His right-hand man and... Lawyer, also by now close friend Jeffrey Figer, acted as a shield for his polarizing client, fighting off murder charges left and right, allowing him to continue his house calls that were being requested in overwhelming numbers. Kevorkian shared that he turned down four out of every five requests, yet his detractors claimed he had an itchy carbon monoxide valve spinner and that he was hooked on playing God. Despite the backlash, it wasn't hard to convince juries of Kevorkian's intentions. The consultation tapes were clear. These people wanted to go were begging Jack to help them along, and it was obvious to anyone who watched the videos that Jack meant no harm when he showed up at a client's door toting his mercy machine and projecting his aura of capability. When Jack put the mask on a patient, gave them a reassuring stare, then opened the valve and pointed to the clothes peg, it was not a murder in progress. Kevorkian wasn't there to end his client's life. He was there to help them end their own suffering. Throughout the years where Kevorkian was unimpeded in helping his clients, he had been under the uh, supervision, let's say, of his older sister, Margot. Kevorkian was a wild card. He, like I said already, would have fucked this whole thing up out of the gates if left to his own ideas and how to approach this extremely touchy subject. Jack was hell-bent on implementing a strategy that would send him to jail. He was upset with Figer for doing such a good job at times. He felt that they needed to make a splash. Here's a short quote from uh, Kevorkian on this. Quote, I knew history. I knew someone had to go to prison. End quote. Margot thought this to be a terrible idea, as did Figer. They had won all cases thrown at them by this point, and 
Some speculate that had Kevorkian simply fell off the face of the earth in 1996, his work would have held up, causing the public and thereby the courts to have eventually softened more and more over time to the idea of assisted suicide. Unfortunately, Jack's oldest sister, of whom Figer described as Jack's rudder, died suddenly of a heart attack. Kevorkian was without his trusted voice of reason. By September of 1998, Kevorkian had convinced himself that the only way to blow this thing wide open was to become a martyr. He visited a client named Thomas Uke, who was suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease. He made this house call alone, which was unusual. It was later surmised that he did this so as not to implicate anyone else, or maybe so as that no one else would try to stop his approach. Kevorkian rolled tape as he completed the consultation with Uke. Even though it was clear Thomas Uke is capable of triggering the Mercitron on his own, he actually signs consent at one point with a pen. Kevorkian suggests that rather than using the gassing method, they go with the quicker and more painless option of lethal injection, and that Jack inject Uke himself. Uke agrees. Jack then does something he's never done before. He continues to roll tape as the process plays out. Uke is injected and dies on camera. Kevorkian calls it in. He's tickety-boo with authorities and medics by this point. In fact, the prosecutor has told him directly that he'll be allowed to continue with his assistance to suicides unimpeded by the courts. He's home free in Michigan. But Jack wants the whole thing. He wants a national debate. Armed with the video of Uke's illegal death, he calls up a friend who's a professor of journalism and asks what's the best way to garner maximum attention to what he's done. This friend suggests approaching 60 minutes for another interview. So, on national television, Kevorkian shows the tape of his illegal act. Thomas Uke voluntarily dies by Kevorkian's hand in front of millions of people. The host is shocked. He asks Jack what his endgame is here. Kevorkian replies, quote, Either they go, or I go. End quote. It's a final stand. Jack Kevorkian is provoking a sympathetic prosecution and is sending him to jail in order to spark a national debate. He believes that he can get this thing to the Supreme Court and win, that he'll have completed his quest, fulfilled his life's duty. It's a huge gamble. Kevorkian even promises to starve himself to death in jail if he loses. After the episode of 60 Minutes airs, Kevorkian waits impatiently to be arrested. He is quoted as saying during this period, quote, If he doesn't charge me soon, I'm going to do another one on his front steps. Finally, Jack gets his wish, and eventually he's in court again. Once there, he drops his longtime lawyer. Kevorkian wants this thing to get out of hand. He's going to take the reins and make his final stand alone. Maybe it's the ghost of the Armenian Holocaust spurring him onward to fight against an injustice. Kevorkian knows he missed that slaughter by a generation. He always had some survivor's guilt over it, I'm sure, and a drive to succeed in their name, firmly attached to his ego. Kevorkian loved classical music. I've listened to Bach throughout my writing on this topic, and it's clear that every song is a catalyst to whatever story the listener can relate it to. There's always a moment of rising intensity in the more emotional pieces. A crescendo. This was Kevorkian's crescendo. He was going to go out on his shield. Well, maybe not. He had thrown his shield away by dropping Figer. Kevorkian was, fittingly, on a suicide mission. He ran naked toward the courts, of whom he put in an impossible position. From the sidelines, friends and family shook their heads as Kevorkian was raked over the coals by the prosecution. Without Figer, Jack was defenseless. Literally. Before the verdict was read... Judge Jessica Cooper spoke directly to Kevorkian. 
She had this to say, confirming that Kevorkian's bold move had been the mistake his friends feared it would be. Quote, You had the audacity to go on national television, show the world what you did, and dare the legal system to stop you. Well, sir, consider yourself stopped. Kevorkian was found guilty of second-degree homicide and sentenced to 10 to 25 years. All appeals failed, and Jack went in at the age of 73, suffering from hep C and the effects of old age. Many expected him to die in there, but he gutted it out, and eventually, after being deemed terminally ill from the hepatitis C and promising to not continue his practice of assisted suicide, he was released on June 1st of 2007, eight and a half years into his sentence. Now in his 80s, Jack shared with anyone who would listen what he had learned while doing time. For one, he learned he had a regret, it being that he hadn't started this whole thing sooner, so he had more time to complete what needed to be done. Secondly, he'd learned of the Ninth Amendment, which, in a dated way of speaking, promised Americans the right to choose how and when they die. It reads as this, Ninth Amendment, quote, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. End quote. Armed with this new knowledge that the Constitution clearly states that it's the people's choice to do as they choose with themselves, shout out end the prohibition on psychedelics, shout out hashtag free the weed, Kevorkian was invited to lecture and continue to speak out in favor of assisted suicide. After overcoming what looked like inevitable death while in prison from complications tied to his hep C, Jack took a run at politics. Of course, he knew he'd never get elected. There was always method to Jack's madness. I'd like to touch on Kevorkian's religious viewpoint to finish up here. His parents were devout Christians and had attempted to indoctrinate Jack from an early age. He spent regular time at church and Sunday school, but as soon as he discovered he was able to hold his own in adult conversation, he began doing so at every opportunity. He openly questioned why a God who gifted his son the ability to walk on water would later ignore the plight of his extended family, some of whom were spurred on into the desert until they simply couldn't walk at all in the name of another apparently superior conduit to God. He quickly saw religion for what it is, in my opinion at least. A twisted convoluted promise that everything's going to be okay, as long as you follow an ever-changing set of rules that shift depending on who holds the golden goblets in their safe. Unsubscribe, unsubscribe, <laughs> unsubscribe. That's all right. I, I'm willing to lose a few listeners in exchange for the freedom to speak my mind here. Life's scary. The fact that it ends is scary. It's tempting to squash that fear with the promise of an afterlife. I'm open-minded, maybe even a little spiritual, but I have trouble listening to anyone act as though they have the answers. I resent being threatened with the prospect of eternal damnation if I don't follow the rules in a book written by men with a feather, ink, and candlelight. I know right from wrong inherently. I don't need to be bribed or intimidated and not being an asshole. <sighs> I'll cite Kevorkian here. Quote, you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you are, and you don't know where you're going when you die. Period. Never going to know. Religion ain't going to explain it. Science isn't going to explain it. That's all there is to it. And you've got to accept that fact. If you do, then death loses its terror. It's part of life. End quote. I'm going to lay off religion now, but I think it's important to understand that it still affects the practices associated with death and dying in hospitals and care homes worldwide. I'll let Jack explain. He was always more than willing to take the heat. Another couple of excerpts here from that 60 Minutes interview that I played in the beginning. 
The interviewer is Andy Rooney, and to be fair, Andy softens on Kevorkian as the interview rolls on, though that might not be clear from these snippets. I'll end the podcast with Jack's words and warning. But I guess before I play what I prepared, I should say that he died almost four years to the day he was released from prison, on June 3rd, 2011, at the age of 83. He spent about a month in hospital before he passed away. As he feared, there was no option of assistance on his way out. Are you in any way religious? Uh, I might be, but my religion centers uh, in a different area than, uh, than what's considered uh, conventional religion. Anytime anybody starts hedging like that, I realize they're not religious. Well, you no, know, no, religion is an internal spiritual world. And I have my own with my God, Johann Sebastian Bach. I mean, why not? Every, you invent gods, that's my God. But at least he's not invented. You've lost common sense in this society because of religious fanaticism and dogma. You're basing your laws and your whole outlook on natural life on mythology. It won't work. That's why you have all these problems in the world. Name them. India, Pakistan, Ireland. Name them. All these problems. They're all religious problems. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com.